Hi, I'm Jonathan Pennington, and this is the Human Flourishing Podcast. This podcast is a repository of a wide variety of sermons, lectures, interviews, and other resources that I've recorded over the years. Today's episode is a sermon I preached at Sojourn East in Louisville, Kentucky. And our scripture this morning comes from Luke 11, 27 through 36. So if you're able, please stand for the reading of God's word. As Jesus was saying these things, a woman in the crowd called out, Blessed is the mother who gave birth to you and nursed you. He replied, Blessed, rather, are those who hear the word of God and obey it. As the crowds increased, Jesus said, This is a wicked generation. It asks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah was assigned to the Ninevites, so also will the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise at the judgment with the people of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom, and now something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now something greater than Jonah is here. No one lights a lamp and puts it in a place where it will be hidden or under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand so that those who come in may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eyes are healthy, your whole body also is full of light. But when they are unhealthy, your body is also full of darkness. See to it then that the light within you is not darkness. Therefore, if your whole body is full of light and no part of it dark, it will be just as if light, it will be just as full of light as when a lamp shines its light on you. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Morning, friends. If you're visiting here, my name is Jonathan. I'm one of the teaching pastors here. We're so glad you're here with us. To begin today, I'd like you to think about a time, and this happens a lot in our lives, I think, when you were so amazed at something so enthralled with the beauty or goodness of something, maybe a concert, uh, you know, Jonas Brothers, that's you're into, or Shania Twain, I think was in town, um, or whoever it is, Pat Metheny, or maybe it's um, a sporting event where something amazing happens, or a heroic event where like a child being rescued from a well or something But whatever it is, something where you cannot help but exclaim how amazing it is. Like Lou City last night. Can I get a witness? Any of them? All right. After a really horrible season um, where we barely had a winning record, we have done surprisingly well, including a big win last night uh, in the playoffs. So we go to all the games, and especially when I'm about to preach, I'm very aware to not yell too much, because I do. And I was telling myself as we were getting there last night, do not yell, do not yell, you're preaching tomorrow morning. But I couldn't help it. When you, when you have these amazing, usually I'm yelling at the refs, but when it goes well for us, you have these amazing goals, amazing moves, you cannot help. God has designed us such that as embodied creatures, our, our tongues and our vocal cords and our bodies, we, we stand up and we do this weird thing where you clap your limbs together. Have you ever thought about how weird it is to clap? Right? But we do these things involuntarily. Right? This is how we respond to something beautiful. And 
that kind of experience is how our story opens for today. You just heard it read. This woman cannot help but exclaim how amazing Jesus is, and we'll come back to it and look at it here in a second. And that leads into then the two things Jesus says in response. And they're kind of, it's kind of hard to put it all together at first. But what's happening is, we're, here we are, we're preaching through the Gospel of Luke. We're in chapter 11 now. And if you were to go back and look through the 11 chapters before this, what you'll see is that Jesus is doing truly amazing things. Raising people from the dead, healing all kinds of diseases, casting out demons, teaching teaching people in ways that they can't even believe. It's like so clear for the first time how, how, who God is and teaching on very practical things like prayer. This is a part of our text earlier in chapter 11, like how do you pray? What is this? And, and Jesus is teaching these things. So people are in amazement. So everybody's in, in agreement that something different is happening with Jesus. He is not just a normal teacher. He's not just a normal rabbi. He's not even just a normal kind of exorcist or something. There's something happening. Everybody agrees, but not everybody's happy. In fact, unfortunately, increasingly, the religious leadership is very upset with this upstart from the north, from the sticks, from Galilee, who's not part of their religious establishment, not part of their educational system. And he's saying things that are challenging to them and he's getting these massive crowds. And so there's a lot of opposition to him increasingly. In fact, in the text from last week, if you're here, you can just glance back at it. They have come to the point where the religious leaders have decided to say that they can't deny that Jesus is doing miraculous things. They, you know, they, they realize he's not just doing magic tricks. So they have to say, okay, right, fair. He's doing amazing things. It's because he's demonic. That's their desperate attempt to try to explain this phenomenon of what is happening through Jesus. And it's in this tense moment when they have, the religious leadership has just said that Jesus is satanic, that this woman cannot help this woman who has been observing Jesus and, and seeing all that he's done and healing people. And, and, and in fact, the reason they called him demonic is because he had just healed someone or cast a demon out of someone. If you look at verse 27 again, what starts our story, she can't hold back. And it says, as Jesus was saying these things, a woman in the crowd called out, blessed is the mother who gave you birth and nursed you. I want you to feel how, what a bold move this is. I mean, she's a nobody. She doesn't have the authority of the religious leaders, and they have just declared that, that Jesus is bad, and she cannot help it. She cannot help but cry out, you are, you are amazing. And that's good, and that's right for her to honor Jesus. And of course, the, the mother that she's referring to is Mary. We've met her before. And in fact, if you think back to the stories at the beginning of Luke, we see that this is exactly how Mary's described, that she is the one who is favored by God and who is happy in the sense that she is experiencing God's favor and flourishing or shalom. Back in the, the stories that we're most familiar with from Christmas, this is exactly what is said of Mary. Do you remember? She turns out to be um, of, with child by the Holy Spirit, and when she meets her cousin Elizabeth, who also has had this not as miraculous, but also an unexpectedly miraculous uh, pregnancy, Elizabeth sees Mary and says, you are most blessed among women. 
And then in Mary's song in chapter one, she says the same thing. She says, the Lord is, has blessed me and, and I will be called blessed among women. And so what this woman is saying here is not inappropriate. This is exactly what's true and, and right. That, and, and I think it's a good remembrance for us too, especially as Protestants, that we don't really give credit to Mary very much, but she is called by God and by the angel Gabriel the most blessed among women because she does play this unique role in God's work in the world as actually the mother of the Son of God. So that is all appropriate for her to say this about Jesus and to say this about Mary, which makes Jesus' response to this all the more perplexing. Look at verse 28. He replied, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and obey it. Now, that seems like kind of an odd response because at first you could misunderstand this as if Jesus is like deflecting it. Like you could, I think you could overread this like as a, too much of a contrast. Like, no, 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 I'm not blessed. No, I'm, and Mary, no, you should live with her, right? No, that's, that's not what's happening at all. She is the most blessed and he agrees. Then why would he say this? Why is this his response to this moment of genuine praise towards him and towards his mother? I think Jesus wants the whole crowd, and to us today as well, to understand something crucial about who he is and his ministry. Jesus is coming into the world and healing people and restoring people, raising people from the dead, providing for people, modeling who God is. He's doing these things not just so that you and I will kind of sit back with our popcorn and think, wow, this guy's amazing, or even just say, wow, he is, he is great, and man, his mom must be so proud of him. The point of him saying this and pointing him to the world is so that we will actually examine our own hearts and examine our own lives. In other words, he's not denying what this woman said, that, that Jesus is blessed and Mary, his mother, should be very happy with him. He's not denying that, but he's saying, if that's all you think I'm doing, that you'll be amazed at who I am, you're missing the point. He's saying, I too want you to find this actual blessedness, this life, this flourishing, this shalom. I want you to find this sort of life that you're made for, and the only way you're going to find it is if you actually do something. Hear the word of God, listen to it, and then do it. It's very practical. I was trying to think about how to illustrate this. I was in the Pizzaville, this is not a product placement, I don't get any endorsement money for this, but I'd highly recommend Pizzaville right in Goose Creek, it's very good, we go there a lot now. And can I get a witness, anybody? No, okay. So I was in there and there was the televisions on, I was waiting to pick up a pizza, and there was some kind of like, some of you know what this is, like, it's like a CrossFit competition, like some kind of where CrossFit people, I guess you so you go and watch people exercise, I guess. And but it's this like CrossFit competition, and it was pretty impressive, the things they were doing and, you know, carrying these huge weights and jumping over things or whatever. It's very impressive. And I was imagining that what if you were sitting there at this, like, CrossFit competition and you're on your third chili cheese dog and your 64-ounce lager and you're opening your second pack of cigarettes and you're watching this thing and you see somebody do an amazing thing and you say, you are amazing, you're so healthy. And what if the person turned to you and said, thank you? What about you? I think that's what's going on here. He doesn't deny what's true about him, 
but he wants us to pay attention to how we also can find life and life through him. In fact, there's a very interestingly related story that happened earlier back in chapter 8 where some of the same players are at work here. In Luke 8, 19 to 21, we read, Now Jesus' mother and brothers came to see him, but they were not able to get near him because of the crowd. And someone told him, your mother and brothers are standing outside waiting to see you. So Mary, mother's in this, you know, Mary's in the scene as well. And he replied, my mother and brothers are those who hear God's word and put it into practice. So this is something that Jesus says regularly. And what happens then, if you look down at the following two paragraphs, I think what happens is that in light of that truth, that Jesus is the one who is the Son of God incarnate and his teaching, I think what he says in the next two paragraphs show us two different ways that we might respond to that. Two different ways that we might respond to this radical claim of Jesus. One way that's bad, that's foolish, and will not result in life, and one that is good. And so I want to look at these, just kind of keep following the text along, and look at these responses. First, the foolish response, which we can call demanding a sign. Look at, let me pick it up in 1129. So this woman has just said this, and then it says, as the crowds increased, Jesus said, this is a wicked generation. It asks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah was assigned to the Ninevites, so also will the Son of Man, that's Jesus, be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise at the judgment with the people of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom, and now something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation, his own generation, he's saying, and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now something greater than Jonah is here. You see, Jesus' power, all he's doing, it always drew a crowd. There's no doubt about that. But as we see when we read through the Gospels that as the religious leadership who is threatened by him increasingly has conflict with him, one of the things they do is they demand a sign from him. Do this so that we know you're really from God. And as readers of the Gospels, we should feel how ridiculous that is. Because everything Jesus is doing is a sign. His teaching, his healing of people, his multiplying bread and and fish, all the things he's doing are signs. Their problem was not that he wasn't doing enough signs. These are the wonders he's doing. Their problem was not an evidence problem. Their problem was a heart problem. And so this is what he's saying. He's saying, this is a wicked generation. If you're, if you're asking me for a sign, all the things I'm doing right now, you're misunderstanding. This is not a matter of me showing you enough evidence. This is a matter of the heart. And so to illustrate that, Jesus tells or just references really two very famous stories from the Old Testament, the story of the prophet Jonah and the story of Solomon, King Solomon and the Queen of the South. And, and the story of Jonah, you may know this, it's one of the, Jonah was this, it's kind of a complicated story in some ways because Jonah was this very reluctant prophet, but he's sent by God to, these, to this 
pagan, this Gentile city that's known for its wickedness. And, you know, as the story goes, he's reluctant, but he finally does. And when he preaches God's grace and kindness to the Ninevites, they actually repent. And so he's saying, you know, you are, we have this model already of people hearing the word of God and repenting, and yet you're not, he's saying to the, his opponents. And then so he tells another story in the middle of it, the queen of the south, this is referencing a story when King Solomon, the son of David, who was known for his great wisdom, had kind of established his court and established Jerusalem. And he became so famous because of his wisdom that was God's wisdom. There was this famous other royalty, the Queen of the South, the Queen of Sheba, which would have been an area kind of at the bottom of the Red Sea, Southwest Arabian Peninsula, so kind of Eritrea and Ethiopia, um, Yemen, that kind of area. There was a very famous queen there who traveled all the way to Jerusalem to meet Solomon, probably wondering if he could really be as good as all the stories said. And when she hears his wisdom, she also you know, honors him and, and honors the God who made him. And so the, the point is, these are examples, the Ninevites and this queen of the south, notice who are both Gentiles, interestingly, but these are people who heard the word of God and did it. Just like he's saying, this is the way of blessedness. Those who hear God's word and do it. That is, they listened to it and they responded to it. And then he's saying, if that's true of them, how much more should you be listening to me, the son of man who is the one who is sent by God himself? It's a foolish response to Jesus that many people have. That this demanding of a sign, that we need more before we can believe. God, we need you to X before we believe. And he's saying, this is a foolish response. And you're bringing judgment upon yourselves. And I think the question we need to ask ourselves is, is this true of you today? Is your heart in such a place that you're demanding God to do X before you will believe? And I want to say that to whatever degree that's true of any of us, and many of us here probably, again, it's not an evidence problem, it's a heart problem. And there are a lot of reasons you may be having a heart problem. Maybe you were deeply hurt by parents or friends or religious leaders even. Maybe you know there's a God and you know that if you start kind of be taking God seriously and letting him kind of into parts of your life, that that might mean you have to pay attention to some things, some addictions, some hiddenness, some brokenness, things that make you want to run and hide. Maybe you're just disappointed. Maybe you feel like your heart's hard toward God because you're just disappointed with life. Maybe your life has not panned out like you thought it was going to, financially or health-wise or marriage or relationship-wise, maybe you are in a marriage that feels very 
painful and hopeless. Maybe you want to be married and you're not. Maybe it's something with your children, you, some great struggles and pains, or maybe you're not able to have children. Whatever it is, there are lots of things that can make, lots of circumstances that can make our hearts be hard toward God to kind of cross the arms of our heart over against God. And, but I just want to say that for all of us, our circumstances are never really the issue. The issue is our hearts and how we respond to God. And I, by saying that, I don't want to minimize trauma or emotions or difficult circumstances. And at the same time, with compassion and understanding, Jesus is inviting us to look at this kind of response, this hardening of our hearts towards him, demanding that he do X for us and say something greater, someone greater than our circumstances has entered the world and is here and inviting us really to open our eyes and see him. And that leads to the next paragraph, the next thing that Jesus says, which I think we could describe as the opposite kind of response, a wise response, and that is letting the light in. Look at verse 33. He says, no one lights a lamp and puts it in a place where it will be hidden or under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand so that those who come in may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eyes are healthy or singular or whole, your whole body is also full of light. But when they're unhealthy, your body is full of darkness. See to it then that the light within you is not darkness. Therefore, if your whole body is full of light and no part of it dark, it will be as full as light. Full of light as when a lamp shines its light on you. It's been quite a week, including for me, on Monday I had cataract surgery for the first time. And I didn't even know what that meant. But I just know I was having trouble seeing. And a cataract, I guess, is this cloudiness. And I think they should call it lens replacement. I'm sorry, optometrists and ophthalmologists, I'm not trying to tell you how to do your job, but it, that's a, isn't that what it is, really? So basically, they took out my clouded up original lens and put an artificial lens in there. It's like a 10 or 15 minute surgery. It's amazing. The, the drug run up and, and come down is quite a bit because you have to be awake, but kind of, you know, in a dreamlike state. But it's amazing. I mean, talk about way to go humanity. I mean, I, this is like one of those way to go humanity, a tenth of an inch incision to go in and then put in a new lens. And it's not 100% yet, but it's, they tell me it'll get better because my, I was having so much trouble with this eye. It was so cloudy and it was just so much strain on it. And so I'm very thankful for that. And so I've been thinking about sight a lot. And it was, you know, the recovery's been a little bit more than I expected it to be. So I feel like a little consolation is that at least I got a sermon illustration out of it, right? I mean, I feel like of all the weeks, at least it was an eyeball text, you know, um, because it was not, not easy. I lost a couple of days of my life that I can't get back now from just watching TV because I couldn't do anything else. But this, but I, so I've been thinking a lot about sight and thinking a lot about the eye. Well, in the ancient world, even though they didn't have the ability to replace a lens, they actually thought about sight and eyes probably even more than we do. 
because actually it's very interesting, and I'll come back to this in later sermons because it'll come up in Luke again, but in the ancient world, there was this understanding, a very widespread understanding. This is going to sound crazy, I know, but just stick with me for a second. It's called physiognomy, and the idea is that your body and your soul are connected such that things about your body reveal things about your soul, okay? You can imagine this could get really unhelpful and, un, and even racist and things eventually, but it was a widespread understanding that baldness indicates certain character traits versus certain colors of hair. Um, stature, height reflects certain things, and we'll come back to this with Zacchaeus when we get there. I think this is part of what's being said about him. Left-handedness, you may know the Latin word for left is sinistre, which is like where we get the word sinister. Left-handedness was definitely considered suspect, right? All these aspects of the body were connected to ways that people thought about one's character. And, and this is in the Old and New Testament, it, there's, it's a bigger story to it, but there's ways in which that appears in the Old and New Testaments and that is also kind of critiqued, I think, by the Bible, but I don't have time to get into all of that, but it's a, it's a consciousness. People are aware of that. But there's nothing that they thought more important than the eye. The eye was the primary thing that you could tell about somebody. So you had something like the evil eye, which is this sort of notion that you're, you, if you have an evil eye towards someone, that reflects greed and stinginess inside of you being dim-eyed or squinty-eyed, all these different things about the eye, and you can think of the Old New Testament, these appear as well, they are ways that you can understand something about someone. Now, I'm not saying Jesus was an ancient physiognomist, but what I'm saying is here, they thought a lot about the eye, and in this text, this is what's going on with this idea of the eye being the lamp of the body, meaning that the eye reveals, there's a connection between what your eye is like and who you are on the inside. And honestly, this paragraph, this is not the only place this metaphor, this image comes up in the Gospels. This version of it is really hard to kind of put all the pieces together with. Even somebody like me who has the luxury of spending all my, all my hours uh, studying the Gospels and teaching them, I and other people like me, when we look at this particular paragraph and you read the commentaries on it, it's still not entirely clear what's being said in some of the details of it. But I think what is very, very clear, and I think the main point of this paragraph is very clear, that who we are is a function of how we receive, or not, the light. Light is this image of God and his truth going forth all throughout the Bible. And this is saying, with all the kind of details in there that seem a little confusing, what's very clear in it is that how you receive the light, if you receive the light into yourself, it makes your interior person light. And if you don't, it makes us and leaves us really in darkness. Maybe today you don't feel hardness of heart, like maybe you don't, you're not in this place like the previous paragraph. Maybe you don't feel like you're hard-hearted toward God or I'm hard-hearted towards God, but how big is the aperture in your life 
where the light of God shines in. I mean by an aperture. How big is the lens in your soul as you think about God and as you think about Jesus? Is there, is it pretty small? Where there's just some parts of, or some small amount of light coming in, but it's limited? Are there rooms or sections of your heart and life where you don't want the light to shine in? Maybe too painful, too scary, too revealing. Maybe there's something that comes to mind, a relationship, some secret, some habit, some aspect of your thought life, where you're not saying you're hard-hearted towards God, but you don't want the light to shine in to that area. I think what Jesus is saying here is, again, opening the aperture of your heart, letting the light shine in, and having that fill yourself, your very soul, with light is another example. It's a good example of hearing the word of God and doing it. The thing that he says, this is the way of life. Blessed is the one who hears the word of God and does it. Hearing the word of God and do it, it means being willing to let the light shine into all the parts of your life and being transformed. I mean, friends, the good news is that when we open ourselves up to God and let his light shine, including into these scary secret places where we're willing to take secret places and thoughts and difficulties and anger into the presence of God, into his flooding light, the good news is, rather than those things becoming bigger and stronger and defeating us, they are cleansed. They can be washed. They can be revealed and destroyed beyond our wildest dreams. Mold and decay and fungus grow in darkness not in light. And so I think what's happening in this text is, again, Jesus is saying, do you want to find life itself? Do you want to actually find the flourishing that you long for? We do, we all do. You need to hear the word of God and do it, not responding with a kind of hardness of heart, demanding more of God, nor keeping the aperture so small that he doesn't really shine our light in, but hearing his invitation. It's not a condemnation, it's an invitation. So the final question I would just ask for us then, then what do we do with this? Like how do we actually respond in our kind of day-to-day lives? Well, we could take this legalistically. We could take this, and many of you grew up in Christian homes where you were taught that Christianity is doing the right things, keeping good appearances, making sure you don't embarrass your parents, going to church, doing the right things. But the idea of actually letting light shine in and look into those deep and dark places, those wounds and hurts and powerful emotions, that's not only is that not part of Christianity, but that needs to be tampered down and stamped down. That's not the response Jesus is looking for. Hear the word of God and do it doesn't just mean do a bunch of more good things. 
He's defining it for us. It's actually opening your heart to God. You can also respond to this, and especially if maybe that's the kind of environment you grew up in and you've come to see grace, we could also respond poorly on the other side and say, well, not, nothing matters what I do. I'm just, I'm just here. Well, Jesus is saying, not only hear the word of God, but you do need to respond. How we respond really matters. And the middle way of wisdom, I think, between, you know, trying to just do more things as a result of, of these words or don't, you can't do anything. The middle way of wisdom is always Jesus' invitation to look inside, to be honest, to know that he looks upon you with kindness as in inviting you to let that light shine in, to respond, to receive this greater light, greater than Jonah, greater than Solomon, because that's where life is to be found. We've used this quote before. I'll put it before you again. A great quote from Dallas Willard. Grace is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. In other words, God's grace toward us seen in Jesus does not mean that we don't have to respond. We do. It means we don't try to earn our favor with God, but he's inviting us to respond, to be open and humble and authentic before him. Because friends, that's where life is actually found. That's where the blessedness that we long for is really found, hearing the word of God and doing it. And what that looks like in your life is gonna vary. Whether you're retired or work a job, or you're a student or married or single, whatever, this is the beauty of God's wisdom is that it's not one size fits all. We're not giving you here at church all the things you have to now do. We're inviting you as ambassadors of Christ, I'm inviting you to hear the word of God through Jesus, his love for you, his kindness, and open yourself up, open the aperture of your heart to let that light shine in. Thank you for listening to the Human Flourishing Podcast. To learn more or get in touch with me, visit my website, jonathanpennington.com.